I love uh, to, you know, Craig always reminds us that he's praying for us. He already looked ahead at this uh, message today, and he said, man, you got a hard one today. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're right, but he prayed, so that's pretty fantastic. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Uh, this is the, the second letter Paul wrote to this church, and you know, remember it was made up of relatively new believers, and one of the big concerns they had was that somehow they had missed out on the second coming of Christ, and, and that's pretty alarming for obvious reasons, right? I remember one time when I was uh, pretty newly married, uh, I worked and my wife stayed home. We had one little kid at the time, and I came home from work one day, and she's gone. She's not there. Nathaniel's not there. And at first I wasn't too worried, you know, but then I started looking around and like all the cars are there, all the bikes are there, all the carriers are there, all the strollers are there. And, and every mode of transportation is there and they're not. And I remember <laughs> this was when I was still in my pre-trib believing days, but I remember thinking, uh oh, <laughs> you know, the rapture's happened and I'm, 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 I've been left behind. You know, thanks a lot, Tim LaHaye. I appreciate that. But it turns out she was just across the street at the neighbor's house. She walked over there and thought she'd make a new friend and, you know, lose six hours over there at her house. And so I had a heart attack for no reason. <laughs> but, but this is, you know, this is a terrifying thought to think that, you know, you could miss this. And no doubt that these new Christians, one of the reasons they were thinking this way was because of the persecution they were going through. When, when we go through difficult times, when persecution strikes and suffering happens, you start to assume that maybe God isn't for us. Maybe he doesn't love me. And so that was one thing. And then the other thing that I think that um, we all kind of wrestle with a little bit as believers is, you know, have you ever just thought, why am I a recipient of God's grace? Why? Why would he say, I mean, you almost think it's too good to be true. How could he do this for me? Why would he do this for me? And so there's no doubt that there's probably some of that going on in their minds, too. I mean, do you remember thinking that, you know, when you first became a believer? It's better than, it's like winning the lottery, spiritually speaking, almost. How is it possible? And hopefully that hasn't faded because that should be just as amazing to you today as the day you first believed. Amen? And I always laugh when I hear Christians say, I never win anything. And it's like, really? I mean, eternity is a pretty good prize, right? That's, that ain't bad. The point is that when we, when we realize the magnitude of what we've been given, it's easy for us to begin to wonder why, especially when we know that we don't deserve it even a little and so in light of these things, it's no wonder that they might have just concluded that Jesus didn't come back for them, that maybe he just skipped over them. When we don't think we deserve God's love or forgiveness or we don't feel worthy, we can think this way. And, and I'll be honest and say I still don't feel worthy of any of it. I still have no idea why God would, would save a wretch like me. And so just like these Christians, it can become easy to doubt. But but God comforts us. He, 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 in his mercy, he gives us comfort by giving us evidences, evidence that uh, we can be confident that we're saved and that he really does love us and that he really is going to come back for it just as he promised. So Paul's going to comfort the, these new Christians who were feeling this way in three ways. First, he's going to let them know that there's no way that someone can mistake the reality of Jesus' coming. He's going to dive into that further in chapter 2. He's really going to dig in there, but, but you're going to see some of it in this passage this morning as well. Second, he's going to reassure them that true saints will persevere till the end and that they will be granted relief and reward on the day of the Lord. And third, he's going to let them know that God is not unaware of their suffering uh, he knows about the people that are afflicting them right now. He cares. And the time will come when God will repay them for what they've done. And, and then he's also just going to let them know that, that their suffering that they're going through actually has a purpose. Um, it provides evidence of their salvation 
and it glorifies God. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 12, it says this. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at by all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul starts out that section by saying, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So we have to figure out what is, what is this referred to? Um, what is the evidence of, of God's righteous judgment that he's talking about? This evidence is really important because the next thing he says is those who have it will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. So, it might be kind of helpful maybe to think of a courtroom scene here. I love a good courtroom scene. I'm a sucker for movies that have, you know, a really good courtroom scene going on. So in this courtroom scene, we have God as the judge. We have the Christian as the accused. And then for the accuser, we have everyone who could come against us with evidence to prove us guilty. Now, I don't know what your courtroom looks like in your mind, but mine is filled with people that can bring accusations, real good and true accusations against me and, and could accuse me rightly. Anyone who knows me or has known me from before um, could easily make a case that I should not be allowed to go into heaven. If they pulled my rap sheet, it would be obvious, right? I'm not worthy. That's clear. Verse 5 ends with another piece of information that strengthens their case. We kind of already talked about this against the Thessalonian Christians, that the, the fact that they're suffering um, at this point in time. You know, whenever somebody suffers, we think, well, they must be doing something that, to deserve that. They obviously, you know, God isn't happy with them. God doesn't like them. They're suffering. They're, you know, they've done something to deserve this. This is the way we think. So there seems to be more than enough evidence to convince a good judge that we are unworthy to enter into the kingdom of God, where the standard for entrance is perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, right? But here's the problem. God has declared you righteous, if you're a Christian, God has declared me righteous. He has declared me holy, not guilty. If you're a Christian, that's true. God has declared you righteous. But is God a bad judge? It's like I, I, I think about that sometimes and I'm like, me? Righteous? Holy? Me? Is he a bad judge? Is he corrupt? Can he be accused of injustice or double standards or favoritism? You know, that happens. We're used to seeing that in the world, are we not? We see that all the time, where people have a different standard for one person and another one for another one. Some people get off, you know, get away with murder. Other people get, they're guilty before, you know, even, even a question's asked. We see this kind of favoritism, this special treatment all the time. But no one can accuse God of that. God is, is the God who sees and knows all. He doesn't show partiality. He is completely just and fair. So, so we have to reconcile this. Evidence must be brought forth that proves God's judgment about us is right and good. Evidence that satisfies our accusers and that also convinces us. 
So when Paul says this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, we should all lean forward in our seats a little bit and be like, "What? tell me more about this evidence, please. It's found in the verses that Pastor David covered last week. We see exhibit A, B, and C brought into the courtroom. And here they are. Growing faith, increasing love, and steadfast endurance in affliction. Those are the three things that we saw there. Now, the person who... Uh, who is worthy to access God's kingdom will have these evidences present in their life. Now, if you're like me, you might feel a little panic at this point. Because when I look at that list, I think I'm not somebody who is able to produce abundant faith, steadfast love, or self-sacrificing love, I should say, and steadfast endurance when the going gets tough. In fact, you could make an argument that Brent doesn't have any of those things going for him. How can these things prove that God's judgment about us is right? And that really is the point, isn't it? The fact that these things are evident in the life of believer proves that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us, that his righteousness has actually been imputed to us. That's the only logical answer for these characteristics being present in me. It, it's also proof that we no longer have to face the wrath of God. Okay, so picture God in the courtroom at the bench reading the verdict. And when, he, when he's evaluating all the evidence, he's going to say, look, Brent doesn't have any of this stuff. None of it's native to him. Uh, the fact that it's there means it came from somewhere else. And then in walks Jesus. God knows exactly where this stuff came from. Right? He's seen it before. It came from his son. It came from Jesus. These things don't originate within me. You wouldn't find them unless Jesus was there, unless he saved me, which is proof that God's verdict is just and right. Jesus has bridged every gap. I fall short when it comes to righteousness, faith, love, perseverance, all those things. But Jesus doesn't fall short, does he? No, it's not a coincidence, by the way, that these things showed up in my life at the same time the Holy Spirit showed up in my life. Right? These are actually called fruits of the Spirit. The fruit or the evidence of the Spirit in your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I didn't have that stuff prior to this. I just didn't. And I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus exuded this. He had all of it. In, you know, was he able to love his enemies? <laughs> yeah, didn't make any sense, but he did. Was he able to keep the faith and trust the Father in times of despair? Absolutely. Was he able to persevere, persevere through the hardest trials? Think about what he went through. Yes. Did he remain steadfast and endure until the race was finished and the goal was accomplished? And he is in us. That's the evidence. That's why we are able to do the same. Do you see that? That's why I can do these things. Not because I'm awesome, but because he's awesome. Not because I'm faithful, but because he's faithful. Not because I'm fearless, but because he's fearless. So God is not an unfair judge. The fact that these qualities of faithful endurance and love for others and hope in difficult circumstances are there, it's irrefutable evidence that Brent died and Christ now lives in me. Proof that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection have done their work in me. Are you guys familiar with Galatians 2.20? It's such a cool verse. It's like one of those fridge verses that we talk about, something you should print out and stick up on your fridge and memorize and think about. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the reality of the Christian. And that means that I am now completely innocent in God's courtroom because Jesus took my trial date for me. He stood in, he took the punishment that I deserve, he paid the debt that I owed, and he gave me the clean record that I could have never produced. So anyone who ever tries to accuse me doesn't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) A courtroom full of people that could just say, this guy, that can't accuse me. You know why? Because I can point to Jesus and say, I'm with him. He did this for me. He did this on my behalf, and I'm, I'm righteous now because of him. It's been, it's been given to me. My life is hidden in him. Praise God. So we have been judged correctly by God, and that will be evident to everybody. And you might be thinking, that sounds great, but I don't often see this stuff pouring out of my life. Is that, does that ring true at all? I mean, are these things evident in your life? I would say that the reason that you may not see it right now as often as you should could be because there isn't a whole lot of need for these things when we aren't actually engaged in battle. <laughs> You've ever thought about that? When things are just going great, life's easy and comfortable, and everything's just kind of smooth sailing, yeah, these things don't show up in your life because there's no need for them to show up in your life. But one of the craziest things that I've ever seen is when this stuff gets put to the test, when a Christian gets put to the test and starts to get squeezed a little bit to see what comes out. You know, it's theoretical until real suffering and persecution and hard things come about. And then at some point you get to the end of you and you become desperate for Jesus. And that's when this stuff starts to show up. I've watched Christians go through things that should just flat out cause them to fold and buckle like a cheap blanket. And and then there they stand triumphant. They go through it somehow. I don't understand it. I do. But it makes no sense apart from Christ. We've all witnessed Christians going through things that should just crush them and cause them to despair, but they hold up triumphantly in a way that makes no sense. You would think difficult trials and circumstances in the life of a Christian would cause them to lose their grip on love and faith and hope and assurance, but it actually increases our grip on these things and strengthens our resolve even more. The power of God and the light of God grows stronger and brighter, which is further evidence that God is in us. And that's the only reasonable explanation is that Almighty God is there. This is describing a doctrine that is, is precious to me. It's called the, the perseverance of the saints. Um, it's, it's the idea that God will preserve his people. He will finish what he started. Right? Jesus said, I will not lose any that the Father gave to me, but I will raise them up on the last day. He won't lose any. So th- this idea that if you're truly in Christ, you will persevere to the end, is a fantastic doctrine for us to hold on to. There'll be evidence that he's there. Don't, don't misunderstand that. But knowing that he will not give up on what he started, he will not let you escape, is really good news for a guy like me. I can't get out of his grip. I love Spurgeon one time said, it's not your hold of Christ that saves you, but it's his hold of you. <laughs> I like that a lot because I would lose my grip every day if, I, if it was up to me, but he will not. Jesus even said that. No one can escape the Father's hand. No one can get out of my grasp. Now, the reality is that if someone does not persevere, it means that Jesus isn't present in their life. And this, this, is, this is where it gets hard, because we see this kind of thing happening. We see, we've, seen, you know, we've all known this, this kind of stuff. We've seen these stories, and we don't know what to make of it. So on one hand, we have hope that if Jesus started a good work in us, he'll continue it. The story's not being done, you know, done being written yet. But on the other hand, we have to be realistic and, and you know, honest about what might be going on in somebody's life, especially if you think you're in and you're not. 
So Jesus taught about this in the parable of the seed and the sowers. And you guys are probably familiar with this. It's in Matthew chapter 13. Um, this is one where Jesus gave the parable like he always does, but sometimes he didn't explain it. And, and this time the disciples came to him and said, hey, what, what are you talking about over there? Can you, you know, and he did, he explained it. So we have that for us in Matthew 13, starting in verse 18, where Jesus says, hear the parable of the seed and the sower. When anyone hears the word of God, or the, excuse me, when he hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and indeed bears fruit, or evidence, and yields in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. So in this, in this parable of these four different places where the seeds landed, three walk away empty-handed. The first one has no understanding of their need for Christ, and therefore no real interest in him. The second has some understanding. They see the benefit, but, it, but at the end of the day, it isn't worth the cost. The hardship that's involved in it, the, the, the idea that you know, you're going to have to go through difficult things isn't worth the cost. And so when it says when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, we, we, I think some of us can relate to that right now when you think about what our world is like and what, how they view Christians. When it, when it rises on account of the word, they immediately jump ship. Like, I'm out of here. I, don't, I didn't sign up for this. Right? The third person in the parable also has some understanding. And like the second, you know, they have this understanding just like the second, but they need, um, they, they see a need for Christ, but they're not desperate for what Jesus supplies. So basically, they're more interested in what the world has to offer. And so they're easily driven away because they think that like the benefit package that the world is offering is better than what Jesus is offering. And we've seen this as well. They care more about this life than the life to come. And then the last person in the parable is the one who counted the cost and understands that their need for Jesus outweighs everything else. <laughs> I don't know if that's where you, that describes you, but literally I can think about that. It's like, okay, world, what do you got to offer me? It's like, that's all you got? Jesus is better. It's like, well, this is, you're going to have to go through hard things. Psh, so what? Jesus is better. Jesus surpasses this other stuff. I need him so much more than I need this stuff that it doesn't even compare. That's what we're talking about. So when the world threatens us and when, when somebody offers riches or they threaten us, we're just like, it doesn't matter. Trials and temptations won't lure us away from Jesus because he's, we're desperate for him. He's worth so much more than those things and nothing else really matters. And we've literally watched this play out over the last couple of years in the church. The minute Christianity got inconvenient, it got dangerous, or it got costly, people bailed. And I'm not talking about everyone who's moved on. I'm not saying that everybody's moved on is, is not a true Christian. That's cult-type language. I'm not saying that. Sometimes people leave a church and they go to another church. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that have just flat out checked out, walked away, cashed in their chips and said, I'm out, forsook the fellowship, however you want to say it. They just walked off. I'm baffled by the number of people that just stopped coming. What does it mean? I don't know for sure, but it's extremely concerning to think about. At best, it means they're taking a break and they'll be back at some point. At worst, it means they were never really of us. 
And that just breaks our hearts, doesn't it? To think about that. People we've loved and been in church with that have just gone off and we, we don't know. I wish that everyone that came would stay. I just, you know, I'm a people pleaser. I, I want to make everybody happy. That's my nature. It drives, well, I know it drives David. I'll let Chad speak for himself. It drives him crazy because I, I, I tend to kind of waffle sometimes because I, I'm a people pleaser. I want to make everybody happy. There's a temptation, you know, we talk about this as pastors. There's this temptation that, that we have to do whatever it takes to make people happy in the church and to make them stay, right? It's, it's something we all struggle with. You can grow a church by doing this. You can literally, uh, people will fill the church if you, if you have this as your mindset. But at the end of the day, this is what you're offering. If you have to keep people in the church at all costs, you're offering them the same things that we see in the parable of the seed and the sowers. It's like, hey, if you come to Jesus, all your wildest dreams will come true. You know, your, your life's going to be perfect all the time. You're going to have riches and you're going to be happy. You know, that's, or, and you know what? You're never going to have any bad things happen to you. You're not going to get sick. You're not going to, you know, that's the kind of stuff that people have to sell. They're selling people a bill of goods. It's a bait and switch kind of situation. That is not the gospel. That's idolatry. You don't want God. You just want his stuff. And that's what churches are teaching people. And, and you can fill stadiums with that message. Hey, you want your best life now? Come join us. Well, we'll that's what people want to hear. <laughs> Telling people that you're going to suffer for following Jesus and go through hard times and that there's a cost, it doesn't fill the seats. But at the end of the day, we have to remind ourselves that what we have here is more than enough. It's not going to be for everybody. Not everybody's going to want to hear this message. But our message is Jesus died for sinners. He was crucified for your sin, and he rose again. And that's the best thing I have to tell you. I've got nothing better than that. That's the best news there is. And if that doesn't appeal to you, I don't, I don't, know, what to, I don't know what else to give you. Right? So Paul assures these, these guys that the true believer will persevere till the end, that they will cross the finish line, and that they have been made worthy to enter the kingdom of God. And this is really good news, especially in light of the fact that they are suffering because they're part of the kingdom of God. He wants them to know that there's an end in sight and that God isn't ignoring those who are inflicting suffering upon them. You know, God, God loves his kids. And when somebody picks on his kids, he's not, he's not ignoring that. He knows that it's happening. So look at verses 6 through 8. This is where it starts to get tough, right? Verse 6 says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, we've already established that God is a good and righteous judge. We already talked about how an unbeliever could wrongly accuse God of letting sinners off of the hook and how we remedy that by, by saying that Christ's righteousness was given to us and that's why he's just there. But have you ever thought about the fact that believers can do the same thing to God? We can accuse God of unrighteousness by saying, how come these guys are getting away with murder all the time? How come these sinners, these people that mock you and that hate you are getting away with evil? How come they're allowed to persecute us? You know, you, you could make the same argument and say, well, you're not just God. You're letting all kinds of stuff happen. We hear that type of thing. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever said, why isn't God doing something about this? Yeah. Well, according to what we just read, he is. Right? He has it written in his appointment book already. It's on the schedule. It will happen. 
God is not turning a blind eye or ignoring evil or allowing people to get away with wrong. You know, there's something infuriating about the idea of somebody getting away with murder. I just, there's some, they're like justice is wired into us in a way that when that happens, when you see somebody get away with something and they know they've gotten away with it, and they're almost like kind of, it just, I don't know. I'm thinking of a white Bronco for some reason right now. <laughs> it's like, come on, you know, this should not happen. Justice should happen. Rest assured, justice will prevail. Someday, those people will stand before God and they will answer for what they've done. The day of reckoning will come. You know, Paul talks about this day of relief that's coming, and this is kind of a twofold day of relief. Part of it is relief that God will avenge his people of the wrong that's been done to them, that they've endured for, for so long. The people of God have suffered immensely at the hand of unbelievers for a long time, and it, and it will continue. The closer we get to the, the return of Jesus, we're going to see this more and more. He's going to bring relief in that sense that they didn't get away with it, you guys. The people that, that, that wronged you, I know, and I'm going to do something about it. And the other part of that relief is because there will be no more persecution or suffering or harm or frustration that will ever come our way again. You ever think about that? I think about that word relief. I mean, it's just... Doesn't it sound great? Webster defines relief as a feeling of reassurance and relaxation following release from anxiety or distress. You can almost just feel the weight coming off you when you think about the word relief. It's coming. It's coming. Now you might say, when? It's like, bring it. Bring it now. When is it coming? I'd like some of that right now. Well, it tells us when it's coming. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. This is talking about the day of the Lord or the second coming of Christ. It's the day when Jesus brings relief for the believer and vengeance for those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. This is a, it's a wonderful and a terrifying day all at the same time. Relief for one group and complete and absolute horror for the other group. This is terrifying to think about. It goes on in verse 9 to say, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is such a different depiction of Jesus than people seem to want to have today. I hate what people have done to Jesus over the years where they make him like, you know, Jesus is my homeboy. There, was, there were shirts and stuff. This was years ago, but it still makes me mad. It's like, no, he's not. It's like, I mean, is he our friend? You know, is he our brother? Yes, absolutely. But don't, don't, don't reduce him to just this, you know, peace-loving hippie that goes around saying, hey, love you, and giving flowers out to everybody. He was a great teacher. <laughs> you know what? He's almighty God. He came as a lamb the first time, but make no mistake about it. He's coming as a lion the second time, and this is terrifying. You know, it's like these people that say, you know, I don't like that version of God. You know, he's, it's like, I don't like the Old Testament God. He was mean now. Now he's nice. It's like God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's revealed himself exactly how he wants to reveal himself in the pages of Scripture. Any version of him that doesn't align with that revelation, it, it, it's, a, it's an image of God that you have created. And, you're, it, you know, it's like God created us in his own image and then we return the favor. That's what that is. It's something you're imagining. It's, it's not the God of the Bible. I love this quote by J.C. Ryle. It's so good. He says, beware of manufacturing a God of your own. A God who is all mercy, but not just. 
a God who is all love, but not holy, a God who has a heaven for everybody, but a hell for no one. Such a God is an idol of your own. He is not the God of the Bible. You don't answer to the God you made up. That sounds great, doesn't it? Because, yeah, what's he going to do? Nothing. You answer to the God that's described in the pages of this book. And that should terrify each one of us completely because he is a holy God. He is a righteous God. The good news is you don't have to face him as an enemy. He's done everything necessary to forgive your debt so that you can face him as a friend, a friend that you will be relieved to see and not terrified to see on the day when he comes. Don't mess around with this decision because everything is at stake. God is just. A penalty must be paid. The cost is high. And God is the ultimate debt collector. What is the cost? You know, Paul lists it for us, and I know that it's shocking to hear, but it's in the Bible for a reason. You know, hell is like my least favorite subject. <laughs> it's what none of us want to talk about in church sometimes, because who wants to come to church and hear about something like that? But God's put it in the Bible for a reason. Jesus talked about hell a lot, and he spoke about it more vividly than anybody else in the scriptures. So the first cost that he lists in this thing is eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. Jesus described hell as a place of blackest darkness, a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where the worm, the worm doesn't die and where the fire isn't quenched. And I, I, hate, I hate to ask you to meditate on that, but think about that. That's what's at stake. It also says that you will be isolated from God's presence. You know, we cannot appreciate this um, because we, we've, never, we've never dealt with it. Even as broken as this world is, we've never fully experienced what this means. We always have God's common grace. You know, we always have little glimpses. There's always a break in the clouds where we can see a little blue sky, right? But this is describing what it's like when you take all that away. There is no goodness there is nothing right. There is no joy. There is no peace. There's nothing lovely. There's nothing beautiful left. God's presence is gone. And that just gives you a, a slight glimpse to imagine how rotten and barren this place will be. And then the last thing it says that in this place you will be cut off from the glory of his might. It's an interesting thing to think about or phrase to think about. Have you ever been in a situation where you realized that no one was coming to rescue you? That's what this is describing. You're cut off from the glory of his might and his power here. And it's eternal. Now, as Christians, we would probably all say that we believe hell is real and that people will end up there. The problem is we don't, we don't act like we believe it, do we? And we, we yeah, yeah, I said, oh, it's real. I think that's real. Well, why isn't there more urgency within us then? Why aren't we pleading with people? Why aren't we telling them how to escape it if we believe it's real? Because they can. If they will believe our testimony about Jesus, rather than being terrified on the day of the Lord, they will experience what it says in verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. A day will come when we will see him coming in glory and we will marvel. 
because he's coming for us. And we're on, we're on the, the, the right side of, you know, we're, we're not on the wrong side of God. We're on the right side of God because of Christ. That will be a glorious day. Well, Paul wraps up this chapter with a prayer for these Christians who are going through so much hardship and so much suffering. And this is how he prays for them, starting in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our Lord, our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul's prayer for those who suffer affliction and persecution is that God would prove us worthy of his calling, that that evidence would be there, that, we would, um, that God would fulfill our resolve for good in every work of faith through his power, and this is exactly how we should be praying for one another. As times are going to get harder and the church is going to be more ostracized from society and Christians are going to be viewed weirder and all this stuff, this is how we should be praying for each other. God, prove us worthy of your calling. Prove that we are the real deal in this world. Prove it to, to us and prove it to those that are watching. Prove that. Help us to love which is that which is good and hate that which is evil as your people. Have that same desire that you have for what's good and to hate for what is evil. And then we should be praying that through his power, he would help us to accomplish every good desire and every faithful action that we can as his people. We should just be involved in kingdom work right here and now, all day long through his power. And then what will the result be? It tells us glory. Glory will be the result. God being seen in and through his people. Isn't that cool to think about? I love when we see this, when we see the church like a, like a giant light in a dark place that people are drawn to. I was going to say like bugs, but that might be the wrong, the wrong image because that's, yeah, I'm thinking of the, never mind. Strike that, that's not good. You know, God's glory is often brought out the most through our suffering, as I've already said. John Piper was, you know, famously once said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him in the midst of suffering, not prosperity. And that's, that's true. That's when his glory is seen in us more than any other time. It's also evidence when this happens, when, when people see God's glory in us, especially in times of suffering, it's evidence that, that not only shuts down our accusers, but it also exonerates us, you know, showing that we trust God. And it proves that Christ is real and that he's in our lives. So because of these things, I can have full confidence that I will be considered worthy to enter his kingdom. I mean, you think about that ever? You ever think about getting there and like getting stopped at the gate? Why should I let you in? Are you worthy? And in and of myself, I know the answer. But again, I can point to Jesus and say, he made me worthy. And I get to come in because of him. It's crazy. And I also know that the suffering that I may experience while I'm here has nothing to do with, with God being mad at me or not liking me or punishing me but rather it's proof that I'm aligned with his son who they treated the exact same way. That's what it proves. It's just more evidence that I belong to Christ and that he belongs to me. You know, Paul wrote this stuff, and you think, well, it's easy for you to say, Paul, you weren't even in town while the stuff was going on. You know, you're off in the distance just saying, hey, you know, you can do it. It's like, no, Paul knew exactly what this was like. He wrote something very similar when he was in a, a, a jail, when he wrote the book of Philippians. He was in prison. And I love that I'm going to end with this verse because it's so good. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, 
and not frightened of anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Um, Father, thank you so much that Jesus was willing to suffer for us. When we think about what Jesus went through in order to save sinners like, like we are, it, it blows our minds. And, and so that the idea that we might have to suffer a little bit for his name's sake is such a privilege. Help us to see it that way. Lord, as the days get darker, may the church shine brighter as, as, uh, as we have opportunity to hopefully rescue anybody out there, Lord, that, that needs to hear about the gospel of Christ. Help us to be that kind of a church that, that we would make it difficult for people to not end up in, in your kingdom um, because we love them, Lord. It, it's the most loving thing we can do. We think about it as being the most offensive thing we can do, but it really is something that is loving for us to, to tell people of their need for Christ. Thank you that somebody did that for us. Thank you that you've included us in your kingdom and made us worthy through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray.